Tech Fighter Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 449 for June 28, 2015. This week, lots of photography topics as we take a look at applications that run on Android smartphones and tablets. Then, consider how to turn a scanned newspaper photo into something useful. The crooks who run CryptoLocker malware may be honest thieves, but they're still costing victims millions of dollars. In short circuits, speaking of lots, Hackers grounded many of the Polish Airlines airplanes this week, and Microsoft continues to clarify conditions under which Windows 10 will be without charge. Maybe some people are just trying too hard to misunderstand. In spare parts, only on the website, how icons that you'll see in Windows 10 have changed during development, and some thoughts on the importance of carefully reviewing a laptop computer's specifications before buying it. From photos on smartphones and tablets to fixing old newspaper photos so they can be printed, much of this week's program is related to photography. Now, it didn't start out that way. I had some other topics in mind, but photo-related ideas kept popping up, waving their hands, and screaming, figuratively, of course, use me. So let's sit back and take a look at photography this week. And we'll start with photos on phones ones you can capture and edit on a smartphone or tablet. The latest version of Adobe's Creative Cloud brings several new features to Android phones, but not to Android tablets. Meanwhile, Amazon's Snapseed is available for both Android phones and tablets. Adobe brings Photos, Photoshop Mix, Illustrator Line, Photoshop Sketch, and Illustrator Draw to smartphones. Although one might wish that these applications also had been ported to Android tablets, it's easy to understand why they haven't yet been and why they may never be. These are apps that will appeal to graphics professionals. While many graphics professionals may have Android phones, most of those who have tablets will probably have chosen Apple instead of Android. As a result, Adobe hasn't seen a great deal of demand for these apps on Android tablets. Snapseed and Creative Cloud are not interchangeable because the Android products bring functionality that you won't find in other applications to phones. And of course, Adobe has an Android version of Lightroom too. Creative Cloud 2015, which makes the new functions available for Android phone users, is less than a week old, so I'm still poking around in the many and varied applications to try to understand what's new. I'll have more on those subjects in coming weeks. Snapseed has two main menus, one that can be thought of as task-related, things like crop, rotate, transform, one that's more effect-related, like lens blur, glamour glow, tonal contrast. A phone can show only one of these menus at a time, so the user has to switch between them by swiping up or down. Be sure to check out the TechBiter Worldwide website. You'll see the images I'm discussing there. 
Not having any photos on the phone when I wanted to take a look at Snapspeed, I just leaned over and took a picture of Chloe Cat, who was waiting rather impatiently for dinner. After capturing the image, I called up the lens blur function and applied it so that the background would be out of focus. Because both phones and tablets are touch devices without a keyboard or a mouse, everything must be accessible by touch. Users need to familiarize themselves with the touch interface, but everything seems more or less intuitive. After you open an image, you'll see a pencil icon in the lower right corner. Tapping it, as you might expect, opens the menu of tasks and effects. When positioning an effect, tapping and dragging work as expected. Pinching and zooming make resizable effects smaller or larger. Swiping left or right, up or down, modifies the effects. And when you're done, tapping X discards any changes you've made, or tapping a checkmark accepts them. Pretty easy. The screen of an Android tablet is larger than the screen of an Android phone, so both menus can be displayed simultaneously on tablets. After modifying an image, you'll be prompted to save it. Snapseed will automatically create a copy of the image instead of modifying the original. This seems to be the normal process for most current applications that are used on portable devices and for many that are used on desktop applications, too. Books are even being offered to explain how to use these small editing platforms, but most of the books seem to deal with an earlier version of the application. Perhaps that's because little explanation seems to be needed to understand how the program works. Snapseed isn't a new application. It's been around for a few years, but the newly released version 2.0 brings a lot of powerful features. Editing in the previous version also was destructive, meaning that changes were made to the original image. That has been corrected in version 2, and the price remains the same, free. So which should you download? Well, why not all of them? The Adobe applications work best when users have a Creative Cloud membership, but they're useful even for those who don't. You can download Adobe Lightroom for Android for phones only, Adobe Creative Suite for Android phones only, or Amazon Snapseed for phones or tablets from the Google Play Store. And all of them are free. And continuing in the photography vein, Sometimes the best way to improve an old image is to make it worse. Now, if that seems like nonsense, stick with me for just a moment. Let's say that the only photo you have of a person or an event is one that appeared in a newspaper. Maybe you've tried to scan that image and print it. You found out the results weren't very good. The reason this doesn't work well has everything to do with the way images are printed in newspapers and magazines. The pictures are made up of dots, and the dots vary in size, but dots are all there is. A Wikipedia image that I've included on the TechBiter Worldwide website shows how a pattern made up of dots could appear to form a block that varies from light gray at the top to darker gray at the bottom. View the image from across the room, and what you'll see might closely resemble a higher definition image. All right, in, in all honesty, this example really isn't going to work very well because the dots on the left in the image that Wikipedia provided are just too large, unless you're in a really, really large room, maybe a basketball court. Distance really is the key. As a disc jockey once said in describing me, he looks good from a distance. Trouble is, you can't get far enough away. Unlike photographs, at least the traditional ones made in dark rooms, 
Materials used to create halftones don't have the ability to create multiple shades of gray. Printers have to fake it by using dots that vary in size and spacing. And from a distance, images created using those dots can look pretty good. When you get closer, though, they break down. But if a newspaper or magazine photo is all you have, and you found that the scanned result was disappointing, you can improve the image. Just don't expect perfection. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, I have a scanned image from a 1942 edition of a Hannah Cole newspaper, May 1942. I've scanned the page, and you'll see a nasty-looking pattern effect is on the image. Moray patterns occur when an image printed with a certain number of dots per inch is scanned. The printed dots and the scanner's sample rates don't match, and that causes that moray pattern to appear. To make an acceptable image from the photo, you need to remove the dots and the moray pattern without destroying the image. That's where the challenge is. The first task is to create a high-resolution scan and save it in a non-lossy format, TIFF or PDF, for example. While photographs can usually be scanned at relatively low resolution, typically 100 to 300 dpi, you'll want high resolution for these halftones. When I scanned this newspaper, I selected 1200 dpi. Making the moray pattern even worse is the fact that halftone dot patterns aren't aligned on a vertical or horizontal axis, so a lot of times you'll get better results if you scan the image at an angle. I tried turning the newspaper to about 45 degrees, and actually the resulting scan looked a little better. So I started out using the image that had been rotated on the scanner. I had to rotate it back to being straight, then I compared it with a straight scan, the modified rotated scan 1. If all this seems like gibberish, here's the real message. Here's what it comes down to, just simply trying various options and selecting the one that works best for any given photo. With the scanned image open in Photoshop, I selected the original layer and created a duplicate called Working Copy. I set up the new layer to be a smart object so that I can apply filters and then modify the filters later. Creating a working copy is simply a way to safeguard the original. So if you saved the original separately, there's really no need to inflate the Photoshop file by creating what's essentially a third copy. So the first order of business is to get rid of all those dots. And you can use a Gaussian filter to do that. In fact, it's the perfect choice. The filter blurs the dots so that they are indistinct, but it also turns that photograph into out-of-focus mush. So you're probably thinking, well, that's not much of an improvement. Hang in there. We're getting closer. The Gaussian blur filter does remove the dots, but it makes the image unacceptably fuzzy, so you have to fix that. After making the newspaper photo unsharp by using a blur effect, it's time to sharpen the image and get rid of the blur with the unsharp mask filter. Once again, it seems like a lot of this is contradictory, or maybe sounds like nonsense. But, in fact, you can sharpen an image by using the unsharp mask filter. It's one of life's little puzzles. When using the unsharp mask, be sure to view the image at 100% enlargement so you can see what's going on. The unsharp mask filter has several settings, amount, radius, and threshold. The amount slider is at the top of the dialog, so you'll be tempted to grab that one first. Instead, start with radius. Radius controls the width of the sharpening effect. The goal is to set the radius high enough that it will affect the image, but not so high that the modification itself becomes visible. The higher the setting, the more pronounced the effect. 
Best results usually are in the 0.2 to 2.5 range, but experiment. Next, the threshold slider. That's the third one, the one at the bottom. Sharpening works by accentuating the differences between adjacent pixels in the image, and the threshold setting determines how different two pixels need to be for Photoshop to start applying sharpening. Higher settings mean less sharpening. So in most cases, the appropriate setting will be relatively low, somewhere between 5 and 15. Once you get done with the two sliders at the bottom, it's time to go to the top and take a look at the amount slider. This is the control that determines how strong the effect will be. Higher settings produce a stronger effect. After getting the sharpening right, you may want to look at other adjustments to control the image's contrast or to repair images with flaws. The complete process really is pretty straightforward. It involves these steps. You select the appropriate scan. In this case, it was the one that I had rotated. Then duplicate the layer and make it a smart object. Add the Gaussian blur effect to get rid of the dots. Add the unsharp mask filter to bring back some clarity. Then add a levels adjustment to improve contrast. And then if you need it, create a spot removal layer that samples all layers so you can clone out any distracting problems in the image. And finally, resize the image as appropriate and export it in the format you need. You'll see the final image on the TechBiter Worldwide website. I had removed a white spot from the suit of the guy on the left side of the picture. That white spot had been caused by a printing problem. I added a levels adjustment to get some extra depth and contrast. This is necessary because newspaper printing is inherently low in contrast particularly when you're dealing with a newspaper that's 73 years old. It's unlikely that you'll ever consider the resulting photo suitable for framing, but at least it's now good enough to be used on a website, in print, or as part of a slideshow. those wild and wacky crypto wall crooks. Crypto wall, as I've described previously, is malware that encrypts files on your disk and then offers to sell you a key to recover those files. The crooks who run the scheme usually do provide the key to unlock files after you've paid, but the better option is to avoid being caught in the first place. Crypto wall is costing individuals huge sums, both in ransom paid and in dealing with the aftermath of an attack. The Federal Bureau of Investigation says people have lost at least $18 million over the past 14 months. Malware such as crypto wall, by the way, is what backup is for. According to the FBI's Internet Crime Complaint Center, the ransomware continues to spread. Malware encrypts files on a computer using a key that's on a remote server, and the crooks then extort money before providing access to the key. The FBI has identified nearly 1,000 victims, and undoubtedly there are many, many more. Hundreds, if not thousands, of victims have either paid the ransom or have simply given up any hope of recovering their files. Those people are not included in the FBI's report. The $18 million figure includes the costs of hiring IT professionals to recover from an event, 
replacing lost data, losses resulting from the inability to bill customers, unproductive time during recovery, and dealing with concerns about identity theft. Probably some companies have been unable to recover and have gone out of business because of these attacks. As I mentioned earlier, this is one of the reasons we have backup. Now there's a new version of CryptoWall. Security experts are referring to version 3.0 as a far more dangerous threat. The FBI says we should all use antivirus and firewall software only from reputable companies, meaning that if you suddenly see a pop-up while browsing the Internet and it offers to fix your computer, you shouldn't allow it. The advice from the FBI is basic computer user 101 stuff. Keep protective applications updated, use pop-up blockers, maintain a current backup, and think before you click. A little healthy skepticism goes a long way toward maintaining security. But in many cases, the crypto wall malware has been spread through advertising networks. These are networks that provide ads for legitimate websites. Network operators remove the malware as soon as they identify it, but all it takes is one person with an outdated anti-malware application on the computer, and the crooks get their payday. Short circuits, let's call this one lots of lot planes delayed by a hacker. Poland's national airline, LOT, had to cancel several flights this week and delay others while it dealt with an intrusion by hackers into its computer system. In all, about 1,400 passengers were delayed, 10 flights were canceled, 12 more were delayed. It happened at Warsaw's Chopin Airport. The intrusion is worrisome, particularly in light of an airline spokesperson who characterized the airline's computer system as state-of-the-art. The airline says that the intrusion affected its ground operations system, which made the creation of flight plans impossible. As a result, no flights could depart Chopin Airport. The intrusion was limited to systems used on the ground, and the airline stressed that it had no effect on systems in LOT's airplanes, planes that were already in flight continued to their destinations. One problem that experts have been discussing is the lack of security on systems that are used on the ground. Some have said that security for these systems is so lax that bogus flight plans could be filed by hackers. Similar attacks have occurred elsewhere around the world. It is absolutely not comforting to know that the first such attack occurred in 1997. Yes, that's 18 years ago. It happened at Worcester Airport in Massachusetts. And back then, it wasn't some highly trained Chinese or Korean hacker who shut down the airport's telephone system, communications with pilots, and runway lights. Oh, no, it was a teenager who shut the airport down for six hours. Bon voyage. <laughs> Thank you.
And let's call this one, Microsoft clarifies the modified updates to the changed policies on the process to upgrade systems to Windows 10. A week or so ago, there was news that all Windows 10 beta testers, those who had installed the technical preview, would be able to continue using Windows 10 without charge once the new version of the operating system ships at the end of July. That's true. But Microsoft did have to clarify, once again, what it means by without charge. Microsoft's developers want to have continued access to those who've been testing the operating system, so unless these users have an existing license that grants them access to the free upgrade, they will qualify for a free upgrade only if they remain in the beta program. That seems actually like not such a big deal. After all, people who are in the beta program probably are intelligent enough not to have installed a preview version of the operating system on a production computer. They're probably running it, as I am, on a computer that is used for non-essential services. So, after July 29th, they won't have to do anything to remove the technical preview and replace it with the full version of the new OS on their test machine. Windows users who are still running Windows 7 or 8.1 do qualify for the free upgrade, and some have already reserved a copy of the operating system so that the download and installation will happen automatically around the end of July. Microsoft's Gabe All says that Windows 10 machines upgraded from the technical preview will continue to operate normally as long as the user does not opt out of the ongoing preview program. Since we're continuing the Windows Insider program, all wrote on the Microsoft blog, you will be able to continue receiving builds, and those builds will continue to be activated under terms of the Windows Insider program. Simple enough. But some pundits probably will decide that this is yet another indication that Microsoft is the spawn of Satan. All says the decision preview members have is whether they want to continue as a Windows Insider and keep getting preview builds after the 29th of July, or upgrade the genuine Windows 7 or 8.1 system that's been getting Windows 10 Insider Previews builds to the July 29th release and stop being an insider. Those who opt out, says all, will be subject to exactly the same terms and conditions that govern the offer that was extended to all genuine Windows 7 and 8.1 customers. This is not a path to attain a license for Windows XP or Windows Vista systems. You can attain some additional information on the TechBiter Worldwide website in spare parts, which is only on the website, how icons that you'll see in Windows 10 have changed during development, and some thoughts on the importance of carefully reviewing laptop computer specifications before buying it. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.